we approach God's Word, uh, let me ask you a question. When you look around at our country and our culture, what emotions do you feel? What do you feel? Kind of in your gut. Uh, let me uh, make the question a little more pointed. Uh, when you look around at all of the lostness of all of the people among whom you live, which emotion more accurately describes what you're feeling right now? Is it compassion or is it contempt? Do you see the unbelievers around you as the enemy or as his victims? Ponder that a minute together and then turn with me to Luke's Gospel and see what Jesus has to say to us in chapter 18 in the parable that he tells us about these things. And when you get there, if you would stand as I read, you can follow along if you are able. As I read uh, Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. We pray that what we are not, that you would make us. And that we should be, that you would... Make us that instead. Father, we pray that You would give us Your heart toward other people and that You would help us to see and to regard ourselves as not just humble recipients of Your grace, but as conduits for it to a lost and a dying and a hurting world. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, look again at the story. Uh, the way that Jesus tells it, um, uh, in verse 9, we see the reason that Jesus tells it, which is this, to correct those who see themselves as righteous and view other people with contempt. And in verse 10, Jesus introduces two different people to us. Uh, one is a tax collector, and the other is a Pharisee. Now, if you were a person living in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were not the people that were seen as we tend to see them. 
the Pharisees were the good guys. You know, we as, as Christians tend to see them as the bad guys. But in their own day, in their own time, they were seen as the good guys. They were the people who took the, the law of Moses and obedience to it seriously. They were pious. They were religious. These were the well-behaved people in society who made every effort to live their lives in a way that pleased God. The Pharisees were greatly admired people. And if you were a good Jew, then you probably wanted your son to grow up to become one of these men. A Pharisee. The tax collectors, on the other hand, were despised. And honestly, with good reason. They not only collaborated with the Roman occupying army, their tax collection was done in a horribly unjust manner that bore more than a passing resemblance to a mafioso's protection racket. Pay me, or I will take over your business, I will take over your house, I will sell you and your children into slavery. It was essentially legal extortion, and no one, no one, wanted their kid to grow up to be a tax collector. So which one, as you understand these two characters, do you think Jesus picks as an example to follow? I'll give you a hint. Your expectation and Jesus' original audience expectation is the same. That it would be the Pharisee. But it isn't. Look at verse 11 and 12 on how the Pharisee prays. He doesn't really talk to God in prayer. Um, he, he doesn't praise God for His righteousness. What he does, in fact, is boast to God about his own righteousness. God. This is an impressive prayer, by the way. <laughs> impressive in all of the wrong ways. God, I thank You that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, the sins that this guy does not commit, can we just go ahead and go on record that these are some excellent ones to avoid? <laughs> right? No one is, is to be encouraged in becoming an extortioner or becoming an unjust person or an adulterer. Uh, if you're thinking about combining a couple of these and becoming an unjust extortioner, a.k.a. a tax collector uh, in Jesus' time, uh, that would not be a good and noble thing. It would not be a way that you would want to live your life. You would do well, in fact, to flee from every single one of these and every variety they might exist in in the modern world. Cheating people in any way is evil. Whether that's financially or whether that's in your bedroom. And the spiritual disciplines that this guy practices are excellent. If you're looking for some things to add to your life that would encourage you in your spiritual growth and development, then giving and fasting are pretty good ones. This guy gives a tithe, a tenth, of all that he collects. 
Everything that comes into his life, he gives, he gives away 10% of it to God. Now, as believers in the New Testament, we are not commanded anywhere that we have to pay a tithe uh, of our resources. But if you're looking for a principle and a place to start from in your own giving, 10% is great. Do that. Start there. See where else God might challenge you from there uh, to continue giving even beyond that. And if, you're, if you uh, want to fast, that's something that is encouraged in your Bible. That you would abstain from something like food, something that you, your body actually needs, so that you could devote your energy and time to focus on the Lord is a wonderful thing. So what's the problem? How come this guy is not the example? Look at verse 9 again. Why is Jesus telling the story? Because He wants to confront people who trust in themselves that they are righteous and treat other people with contempt. And that's exactly what this Pharisee's issue is. He sees himself as a guy, and so he trusts in his own righteousness, and that misplaced trust that he has causes him to treat the tax collector uh, next to him and everyone else on his hit parade with contempt. And you should hear in his prayer the condescension that he has for these other people. He's looking down on them from what he imagines to be a perch of great righteousness. And if you can't hear his condescension, I'll assure you that the Lord can. And a related problem is how the guy sees the Lord. Strangely enough, he doesn't really think of the Lord as holy. Because if he did, he would realize that no quantity of good deeds done and no quantity of sins avoided can make a person really and truly acceptable before a holy God. And since that's true, even relatively good guys like this Pharisee ought to come to God recognizing that they need just as much mercy as everybody else. Whoever they're tempted to say doesn't measure up needs just as much mercy as they do. See, the difference between God's righteousness and ours is like we are standing on one side of the Grand Canyon and God is standing on the other. And then we are bragging to each other about how far off the edge we can jump. Right? What's the problem if you jump off the edge of the Grand Canyon? you will die, right? And it doesn't matter if you jump 20 feet off because you're really good at jumping, or you jump 2 feet off or 2 inches off, you're just as dead at the end, right? Because what you need is someone who is able to carry you from one side all the way to the other. Relative skill in jumping is not going to get the job done, right? It is not going to help. And so what this Pharisee is doing is essentially saying, 
as he stands there, I can jump further than that guy. Well, clap, 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 bud. We'll get to hear your screams for longer as you plummet to your death, right? Um, you know, that's great, right? You're just as dead, just as lost, just as in need of God's mercy as every other person who is a lost sinner right alongside you. In verses 13 and 14, we are confronted with the alternative, with contrition for your sins. In verse 13, we meet the other guy, the guy who is the most unlikely model you can think of, the tax collector. How does he pray? Well, he stands at a distance. And he will not look up to heaven. Why not? Because as he comes before a holy God that he really recognizes as holy, he is deeply, deeply aware of his sins and he, does, and he understands that he does not deserve to come into the presence of a God who is holy. It shows up bodily in him. In where he stands and how he stands with his head bowed. He beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Does he see himself correctly? Yes. He identifies himself not as a righteous person, not as a good dude with a few flaws, but as an unrighteous sinner sees himself entirely correctly. Does he see God correctly? Yes. He understands that God is both holy and merciful. Which is why, even though he knows that God is holy, he is coming before Him asking for mercy, asking that holy God for forgiveness. And he comes not with contempt for other people's sins, but with contrition for his own. And so in verse 14, Jesus hammers home the point. And He says, I tell you this man. Which man? The tax collector. Went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, you must humble yourself by seeing yourself and your sin correctly in the way that God does if you want to receive the mercy that you and I so desperately, desperately need. Now, go ahead and bring that. Nope. This. Hopefully it doesn't pop as bad. All right. Um, I don't want anybody to miss what the Spirit of God is saying to us here this morning. And so I want to underline it even more for both kinds of people that are here today. First, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're, you're here maybe because somebody brought you, maybe a 
mom or dad or a friend, somebody brought you here and you're like, I don't know about all this. I'm not, I'm not convinced that Christianity and Jesus is for me. You need to know this. You need to know that salvation from your sin and from the death penalty that your sin deserves comes to you in one way and one way only. It comes to you as a gift. A gift that can only be received by people with open hands who recognize their sin before God and realize that they need God's grace alone because they're never going to be good enough. And that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, you come to God. And God tells us some very important truth. He says this, first of all, in Romans 3.23, He says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. All. All means, it's a fancy word that means, all. Every last one. Every single human being who has ever lived who is merely human is a sinner. And just like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon taking turns to see how far we can jump, we all fall short of God's glory on the other side. And the fact that you can jump further than somebody else will not get you any closer the kind of deliverance from death that you need. In fact, the, the Bible goes on to say in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That just like a job that you work and you get paid your wages, what you earn because you're a sinner is death. Separation from God for eternity. And if you're depending on your goodness and your good deeds to balance out your bad deeds, I can just tell you what the Bible says about these things, that there is no balanced scale in heaven. That's not how God judges. You either meet His standard of holiness, or you don't. And there's one way to meet it. And that way is through faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Because though Jesus is fully human, He is not merely human. He is also the Son of God in the flesh. And He died in your place for your sin, taking the penalty that you deserved. And was raised from the dead and turns around and offers you the gift of salvation if you put your trust in Him and Him alone. Ephesians 2.9 says it this way, whoever believes in Him will not perish, will not die, but will instead have eternal life. And you receive that gift by God's mercy. And when you do, you put yourself in the same position as the tax collector praying the same prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when you come and you pray that way before the Lord and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the One who died in your place, you receive the mercy that God offers. 
you are made a child of God in that instant. You receive forgiveness for all of your sin. The Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell within you and you are no longer a sinner, but a child of God. And so, we become people who are declared holy because holy King Jesus has given us His holiness in place of our sin. And so if you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, can I invite you to do so right this very moment. I don't care if you've, if you've been a person who's never been to church, this is your first time today, or if you're a person who has been coming to church for 50 years and you all of a sudden realize, I am lost. And my sin is great. And I deserve hell because of it. Anyone who comes, whoever believes in Jesus Christ, will not perish, but have eternal life. According to the Word of God. Every single one of them. So if you've never believed in Jesus, can I invite you to do that right now and receive forgiveness for all you've ever done and be declared right in the sight of God. He has mercy on sinners. In addition to that, on the other hand, there are people here in this room who are already Christians. Many of us are already Christians. And so when we read a story that involves the Pharisees, we're often quick to see them as the villains. And I think that's natural because as Christians, we recognize that Pharisees were Jesus' opponents and so we instinctively take Jesus' side in every dispute because we identify with Jesus. But sometimes I think when we read a gospel story, we forget something very, very important for us to remember, which is that we aren't Jesus. And I know that that we all know that, right? Like, I'm not Jesus. If you think you are Jesus, um, please talk to me. We'll get you some help. Okay. But I know that we are not, we know that we are not Jesus, but we tend to, to, to think of ourselves and identify with him as we read stories about him in the Gospels. And then we miss the truth that Jesus intends for us to apply because we've identified ourselves with Him rather than with the other people in the story. Since we aren't Jesus, what He's saying to them also often needs to be applied to our heart too. And if I'm honest, I would say this, that I am in my worst moments very much like the Pharisee in the story. I can easily tend to forget that whatever righteousness that I possess, I possess as the result of the transformation of the Holy Spirit in my life and start to think that it's something native to me. And then I can, when I forget that, I can start to look at people ensnared by sin, not as victims of the enemy but, and as sinners who need Jesus, but as contemptible people who are making my life harder. Well, what's wrong with them? I can get grumpy and cynical and have kind of a get-off-my-lawn attitude toward a lot of people, right? 
I can. The parable, in other words, is for me and for every other sometime Pharisee. Who knows? Maybe it's also for you in the same way that it's for me. And if you're hearing this and realizing that you too, along with me, in your worst moments, you can be like the Pharisee in the story, can I just encourage you and invite you to join me in repenting right now? We need to first of all confess to God that this is us. This is us. And that we can and do sometimes look down on people who sin differently than we do and can sometimes fall into prideful self-righteousness. And we need to confess that we have forgotten that whatever actual righteousness we have comes to us through the Holy Spirit as a gift and not by our effort but as a result of the gracious work of the Spirit of God in us. And then we need to ask the Lord to help us to see other people, and especially to see non-Christians, not as the enemy and not as lesser people, and not with contempt, but with compassion. And come to God then, not with condescension toward other people, but with great contrition for our own sins. First and most. And I believe that the more that we are impressed by God's grace to us, the more that we will become a conduit of that grace to other people and how we treat them, and our attitude toward them, and how we talk to them, even in which people we share the gospel with. Anybody ever thought about someone else? Well, they are just so gnarly, so nasty so despicable in the way that they live their life, they surely will never become a Christian. Right? And we think that, and that's absolutely the dumbest thing to think in the world, right? Because who does God save? All those people. In fact, my kind of people, right? All the gnarly, nasty, despicable sinners like me. And every other variety of sinner. And the more we're impressed by God's grace to us, the more we're eager to proclaim God's grace to other people. It's only when we have a big view of our own righteousness and a small view of God's grace that we have no passion for evangelism. When we're impressed that a holy God would save the likes of me, then we're like, can't wait to tell everybody (laughs) because you won't believe what has happened to me. You won't believe the kind of people that God saves and what He has done in my life. Come with us. Come be one of them. You won't believe what God does for sinners. That's the idea. Let's pray. Father, I confess to You 
that I have too often been condescending toward lost people who do not know any better and because they lack Your Holy Spirit do not have any more ability to obey You than I do to fly by flapping my arms. And I have looked down on them and treated them as if they were the enemy instead of as His victims. Father, forgive me. Father, help me to be impressed by grace once again. To fall more deeply in love with the God who loves me so much He sent His Son that I might be changed and transformed. And Father, as a recipient of Your grace, make me a conduit of it. Father, I pray for these who are here with me worshiping You. And I pray that if there's any attitude of contempt and condescension within us, that You would wipe it from our souls. And give us instead contrition for our own sin and compassion for the lost. And Father, if there's any lost people here, I pray they would recognize that they are so lost without You. And that You have done everything necessary to save them. You've sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross to wipe away all of their sin, to be raised from the dead, to give them new life. And Father, I pray they would find that new life today. And that they would not be so condemned in their own hearts from all that they've done that they would forget that Jesus paid it all. Every last bit of it. And that nothing remains for us to try and work our way to You. It's not by works so that no one can boast about how good they were. But entirely it comes to us as a gift so that we can boast about how great You are. And Father, I pray that You would help us to understand these things, to be transformed by Your Word and Spirit at work within us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, it is Communion Sunday.